Let's turn to John 14, 28 today. My intention today was to show you that everything we do in this service is directed by the word. That's why we began with Colossians three sixteen and obeyed it in our songs of praise and psalms and an offering of substance. And as we offer our bodies, it's for the renewal of our mind, the renewal of our thinking, the transformation that occurs from that. And now... We're obedient to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 1. When you set your foot into the house of God, be more ready to listen. And as James 1.19 says it, be swift to hear and be slow to anger, slow to speak. For the anger of man never accomplishes the righteous purpose of God. And in James 1.21, receive with meekness, courtesy toward others, Teachability toward God, the engrafted or the implanted word, which is empowered to save your souls. That's now in time, save your souls. And so we are more ready to listen and more ready to hear. Be careful how you hear. Jesus said in speaking of the parables that announce the mystery of the kingdom in Mark 4.24. Be careful what you hear. Be careful how you listen in Luke 8.18 as we hear of the mystery of the kingdom of God. And as the scripture says in Psalm 40 in verse 6, Messiah speaks down the corridors of history and says, ears you have dug out for me, ear canals literally you have dug out for me that I may hear your word and become obedient to you. And in Hebrews 10, 5 and 6 and 7, that verse is brought into a larger sense in which Jesus says, a body you have prepared for me that I might do your will. To sacrifice and offerings of the Old Testament kind you have not wanted. And so he offered his own body. And so it's reasonable for us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. It's our reasonable act of worship. Otherwise, what we do here doesn't have meaning. Now, as we begin today, I'm beginning a new series. And as I speak this series, there is still ongoing the Relentless Love Conference out in Denver. And... We know that our representative, Pastor Phil Henry, represented us very well yesterday at 5 o'clock our time, 3 o'clock Denver time, in his message, a 30-minute breakout session it was called, and it was wonderful. So he fulfilled the commission that God gave him there, and it's continuing today at 12 our time, 10 Denver time, George Saris, another Communicator of the Word will be bringing the message. And it was a fellowship of teachers who believe in the all-saving reality of Jesus Christ. So it was a wonderful conference. Mars was there teaching and also performing, I believe, and many other teachers. Pastor Peter Hyatt has a lot of affinity with me. I plan to call him this week. And he was defrocked. That's what they call it if you're in a a fancy affiliation. 
if you're just like, if you're like me, you're just plain rejected. But they they actually defrocked him because of his stand on the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, which evidently he discovered while going through the book of Revelation. Rev the book. So we have a lot of affinity. And I'm going to go home to be with the Lord someday, knowing that this message has taken root and taken traction and gained purchase in this generation. And I'm very happy for that. So today, a test of faith will be fulfilled. Wednesday, I said, what do you want me to teach on? Instauration or the mystery? And then I said, for those of you that prefer the mystery, pray that I teach on the mystery. For those of you that prefer instauration, pray that I begin a series on the instauration. And then Sunday, we'll find out who has the greater faith. <laughs> so, even though I'm beginning today a series called The Doctrine of the Mystery, the instauration is so intricately woven into it that it's both that the mystery cannot be taught without what I call instauration and instauration cannot be taught without the mystery. We're still on a theme. As the psalmist said, my heart is indicted with a theme. My heart has been indicted with a theme for many years now. And that theme is the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ or Better, Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. And that includes the universal impact of the cross of Christ, an impact that's redemptive, saving, rectifying, reconciling, transformative, and liberating. That's the instauration, the universal impact of the cross. So, this time, the doctrine of the mystery. I've taught on the mystery many times before and given it a lot of shots in the past. Do not relate this present doctrine of the mystery to anything that you have heard before. Because it's going to surpass our previous treatments of this doctrine. This doctrine of the mystery is something that I had an idea about. But I submit my ideas to the Lord, as we all should. Because we have our plans, and we have our purposes, and we have our desires. But the Lord is the one who executes his plan. And so my whole prayer at the outset of this is that I would allow the Holy Spirit to speak by me. As David said in his deathbed testimony. The spirit of the Lord has spoken by my lips and the word of God is on my tongue. That's what I want. You can have a message. It can be an astounding message to some people. It can be an exciting or enthusiastic message. It can be accurate. It can be precise. But unless it's what the Holy Spirit has directed and what he's speaking at the present moment. And unless we are docile to his leading receptive to his leading, then it isn't by any means God's best. And I know that God wants his best for you. And so that's the spirit in which we participate in this. 
John 14:28 is where we're going to begin, and it's kind of an odd intro, I would call it. I was going to call this first increment of the doctrine of the mystery odd intro <laughs> itself. But instead, it's going to be called the meritorious obedience of Jesus Christ. John 14, 28. You heard me say to you, Jesus said, I'm going away. And I'm coming back to you. If you were loving me, you'd be glad I'm going to the Father. Because the Father is greater than I. I just dwell on that for a moment. Jesus went to the Father, having fulfilled the mission on which he was sent by the Father. He was sent by the Father to do the Father's will. Now we're cross-pollinating here with DLT, doing and living theology. In other words, these are two separate series, but they're going to cross-pollinate. They're going to be infused in some regards. A proposed translation of Micah 5.2 reads as the word of Yahweh through the prophet Micah. It is the word of Yahweh speaking through the prophet Micah. We've been studying this several times in DLT. It says Bethlehem Ephrathah. Though you are considered to be insignificant among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of you shall he come forth to me. Please note that translation. Out of you, Bethlehem, shall come forth to me, Yahweh says, who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from antiquity, even from eternity. Now we're coming up to that interpretation under the way of discovery in DLT, but today is the way of teaching, directly teaching you. But we'll see about that in a minute. The phrase that commands our attention here in Micah 5.2 is the phrase which in paraphrase would read this, he shall come forth to me. Remember, Jesus said, you'd be glad if you loved me. You'd be glad that I said, I'm going to the Father. Yahweh, the Father says, he shall come forth to me. The prediction is astonishing. One who proceeded eternally comes out of Bethlehem, the city of David. He comes out of Bethlehem to Yahweh. The New Testament reveals that Yahweh there is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here I employ, I'm employing the way of teaching rather than the way of discovery. Last Wednesday we talked about the way of discovery. He comes to Yahweh in Micah 5.2 as one who has accomplished a mission. One whose going forth has been from eternity. One who has proceeded in eternity. The only begotten son of God. Comes out of Bethlehem. And he comes forth to me. 
the father says, to be the ruler of Israel. And the ruler of Israel, of course, is the ruler of all the nations. Now, because I'm teaching today, I'm just directly, dogmatically, authoritatively teaching. But the Holy Spirit's going to allow you to discover some treasures that are hidden with Christ in this series. You, yourself, will discover them. This one comes to Yahweh as one who has accomplished a mission and who has fulfilled the command of Yahweh. This is what Jesus is referring to when he said, I'm going to the Father. Who's speaking there? One whose goings forth have been from eternity, who comes out of Bethlehem to the Father. The one whose goings forth are from eternity. We'll call that divine procession in our theology class soon. Born in Bethlehem, the angel said, the city of David, because he's the promised descendant of David. He comes forth to me, says Yahweh the Father. This Father is greater than Jesus. Not because he is God and Jesus is not God. But because Jesus is God and human too. And as a divine person acting humanly, acting in fact as the second and the last single inclusive representative of all human beings over the course of all time, He was obedient to the father. So the father is greater than me, Jesus said, inasmuch as the one who commands is greater than the one who obeys. Not because Jesus is not God and in fact equal to the father, as is the Holy Spirit. But because the father divinely commands as a divine person and the son as a divine person obeys humanly with human acts, human acts performed by a divine person. We ought to be glad about that. If you love Jesus Christ, and I think most of you do, if not all of you, in the measure that you're allowed to or can by the word that you know, you're so glad that he obeyed the command of his father. Because the obedience took him all the way through to death on a cross, a death by which he reconciled all his enemies. And he returns to the Father. What a joyous moment. We ought to rejoice then that he was obedient to the Father. We ought to rejoice that the father is greater than Jesus because that implies again that Jesus was obedient to the father's command and that when the son had completed obedience to the father's command and only then when he completed it did he return to the father but remember he said I'm also coming back to you 
Only because the son returned to the father will he return to his disciples, in fact, to all the world as its deliverer, its restorer, its healer. For God says the scripture sent his word to heal them. That's not just a historical word that he sent his word to heal the afflictions of Israel in their desert wanderings. Ultimately, this means God sent his word, the eternal word made flesh to heal the entire human race from what ails them. (laughs) What ails them is they're dead in sins. That's a pretty bad affliction. Death. Psalm 107.20. Now watch how this, again, even though I'm teaching and directly authoritatively teaching, allow the Holy Spirit, make yourself available, entrust your spirit to the Father. Make yourself available to the Holy Spirit because he's the one who leads you into all truth, teaches you everything, and brings everything to remembrance. He does it. He wants you to discover And don't be anxious about it, because if you don't discover now, you will later. If we love the Lord Jesus Christ, we are glad that he went back to the Father, who was greater than he. Now listen to a few verses. This calls up the fourth G series, John 3, 13 to 17. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake, the bronze replica of the serpent that bit the thousands of Israelis, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Reference to the cross. So that everyone who believes in him will have the life of the coming age. That means have it now. For you see, God loved, this is John 3.16. For you see, and I believe Jesus' words end at verse 15. And John's, as the interpreter of these words, begins at verse 16. I believe John, the writer, the beloved disciple, Began with 316. He says, for you see, God loved the world in this way. He gave his only eternally begotten son. So that everyone who believes in him will not only not perish, but also have the life of the coming age. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world. To judge the world, but so that the world would be saved through him. We know the reason why. The judge became the judged. John six sixty one b to 62. Jesus says, you think this offends you? The things he were said, were saying were greatly offensive. Mainly because he was kicking out all the props of human merit. You think this offends you, he says in 61b of John 6. 
And what he's speaking of, that I said you must eat my flesh and drink my blood to have life in you. You think this is offensive to you? Well, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? That is after accomplishing the mission, which is the salvation of the world, which you have nothing to do with, he said in that Midrash, the man of Midrash in a synagogue at Capernaum. The Son of Man existed, in other words, before his descent from heaven. He descended from heaven first. Then he ascended back to heaven. But only after he was lifted up like a snake that Moses lifted up on a pole in the desert. For what reason? To bring life out of death. Thousands, tens of thousands of Israelis had been bitten by a deadly toxin, bitten by serpents who injected a deadly toxin. They were representing all of the human race dead in sins. God instructed Moses to make a bronze replica of the very snake that bit them and hold it up. And as many as just looked, and sometimes they were so weak that others had to turn their head to look. As many as looked, lived. Look unto me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. Now, as the attention of the poisoned thousands in Israel were drawn to the replica of a snake on a pole, they were healed and lived instead of dying. In other words, instead of perishing. The Son of Man, whose obedience led to his being lifted up on a cross, would draw the attention of all of humanity, dead in sins, and drag them to himself, not to perish, but to live. The interpretation of this still goes on in John twelve thirty two. If I'm lifted up, and I will be, I will drag it's a picture of the great fisherman being crucified. And as he's crucified and lifted up, he throws a net. And the net goes over the whole universe that he created in the beginning. And he draws it to himself. All. Not only that, at the same moment, he drew all judgment to himself. The Son of Man, whose obedience led to being lifted up on a cross, would draw the attention not only of thousands of Israelis in the desert, snake-bitten, but all of humanity dead in sins, and drag them to himself, not to perish, but to live. So the Son of Man, such a critical title for him, rooted probably in Daniel seven thirteen and 14, the Son of Man accomplished the Father's will while lifted up like a snake on a pole. When he had fully obeyed the Father's command and fulfilled the Father's will, and only then, he ascended back to heaven. The one who comes, whose goings forth is from eternity the divine procession of the Son, the eternal begetting of the Son, 
comes from Bethlehem, born of a virgin, born of a woman in the fullness of time. He comes to me, the father says, comes back to me through crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and ascension to rule Israel. And in ruling Israel, rule all the nations. He comes to me, says Yahweh the Father. He who was born in Bethlehem, who had proceeded eternally from the Father, who was sent by the Father so the world would be saved through him. Not judged, but saved. Through the one entrusted with all judgment who would become the judged. The son of man, Jesus said, speaking of himself in John 5, 27, the father has entrusted all judgment to me because I am the son of man. And he became the judged. So the one who had in all judgment entrusted to him by the father would become the judged. The only judgment that's on the world today is that the world does not believe in the only begotten son of God. As John three eighteen says, that's the only judgment God has is it's not a condemning one. You don't believe in my son. So he sends the Holy spirit on a tandem mission And convinces the world of sin because they don't believe in the Son. In other words, he evokes faith through the proclamation of this gospel. He evokes the faith. It doesn't say the condemnation of the world is that they're going to go to hell. It says that they don't believe. It's the judgment that's still on the world. It's simply a statement. It's simply a statement of fact. The universal mission of the Son is in tandem with and in fact in union with the universal mission of the spirit who convinces the world of sin because they do not believe in him thus evoking the world's faith the world was saved through Jesus Christ when he was lifted up on the cross When the world believes in him, they will experience the life of the coming age. When any individual believes in him, they begin to experience not perishing, but being saved. The word of the cross is foolishness to those that are still perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's Colossians, that's first Corinthians one eighteen, incidentally. Now notice that also means not perishing, but having the life of the coming age is the same as saying having the bread today that will be served tomorrow in the universal messianic banquet. Jesus said, my flesh is bread for a few people. No. My flesh is bread. That means life. My flesh is the life of the elect. No. 
My flesh is life for the world. The word of God transforms us because it stops our self thinking, our selfish thinking. We go from I'm saved to the elect are saved to the few are saved and I'm part of the few to the mission of God was to save the world and to restore all things. It's a hard thing to happen because what's happening as we hear the word is that the curvature inside ourselves is wrenched around and focused on Christ upon whom the angels are ascending and descending because reconciliation of the heavens and earth has happened in him. Having now the life of the coming age is the same as having the bread today. Give us today the bread of tomorrow, the bread today that served in the universal messianic banquet when Jesus flesh will indeed be served as bread for the world. When the world was saved through him, when he died, was buried, and then resurrected from the dead, he ascended to heaven. That is to say precisely that he ascended back to the Father. He who descended to the earth from heaven and ascended to heaven from the earth is he through whom God reconciled all things in the heavens and the earth to himself. That's what Jesus meant when he told Nathaniel and the other disciples. Nathaniel was a naive realist. Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. Nathaniel said, you were the Christ, the son of the living God, the son of David. And Jesus said, wait a minute, wait, hold it. You're saying that just because I told you I saw you under the fig tree and that you were reading Genesis 28 about Jacob and the angels ascending and descending on the ladder to heaven? You're going to see greater stuff than that, Nathaniel. Don't be so easily convinced because people who are so easily convinced can be easily dissuaded. I'll give you more evidence. In fact, he said to Nathaniel and other, the, all the other disciples in 151 of John, I'm telling you most assuredly, you will all see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Meaning the Son of Man crucified is the reconciler of the heavens and earth, making traffic go freely from heaven to earth by the angels. Heavens and earth, same. Hey, Gabriel, where are you going? I'm going to earth. And that'll be like us saying, I'm going to heaven because the will of God will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So angels will want to come to earth as much as go to heaven. What happens on earth doesn't stay on earth, though. It happens in heaven. What happens in heaven doesn't just stay in heaven. The will of God on heaven is done on earth. Angels, the ladder that David, that Jacob saw in his dream, planted on earth and ascending to the heaven with Yahweh at the top of it, that's Jesus Christ and him crucified. The ladder, in fact, was called the climax, which is a torture symbol. How can a torture symbol be planted on earth and reach to heaven? Because the torture symbol 
is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how instauration blends with the mystery. If we love the Son of God, if we love Jesus, it's because we know that the Father is greater than he. And that simply means that Jesus obeyed the Father's saving will as the divine Son of God, acting humanly. The Father is greater than the Son merely because the Father did not act humanly, but the Son, a divine person, acted humanly as a single inclusive representative of us. And in fact, Jesus said in John 14, 13, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. You'll obey my commandments. I love my Father and I obeyed, obeyed his. If you love me, you'll obey mine. And that simply means in John fifteen ten to continue in his love as he continued in his father's love. Obeying Jesus' commandments is simply a graced participation in his faithfulness. Now, in the the book, The Redemption, I waited years for it. It finally came. It was in Latin for forever. Now it's in English. The Redemption. Bernard Lonergan wrote this, quote, The mission... The sending of the Son by God the Father for the work of our salvation regards both the person of the Son and his human acts. And as far as the mission of the Son regards his person, Lonergan says, it refers to his eternal procession from the Father with the added appropriate external term. Now, we're going to see this in DLT. The divine processions are eternal processions of the Son from the Father and the Spirit from the Father and the Son. But the divine processions equal the divine missions, only they have a, an external term, meaning that external term is the restoration of all things. In other words, the external reason and the external goal and objective of the divine missions is the restoration of all things called apocatastasis, called anakephaliosis, called palingenesia. But by whatever other name it's called, it's instauration. A rose by any other name is still a rose. Instauration by any other name, whether it's apocatastasis, anakephaliosis, or the reconciliation of all things, is still instauration. The rose, instauration, by any other name, is still the rose. The universal impact of the cross of Jesus Christ. Angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man lifted up. The reconciliation of all things. He goes on to say, as far as the mission of the Son regards the human acts to be performed by the Son, it refers to that dependence we call obedience. I love what he says, uh, that dependence that we call obedience. When Jesus said, I can do nothing of myself, he was talking about a dependence that means obedience. He's not talking about a wooden obedience to a command. He's talking about an utter dependence on his father. 
So again, Lonergan chooses the words carefully. As far as the mission of the Son regards the human acts to be performed by the Son, it refers to that dependence we call obedience. For just as to command means to move another through reason and will, he quotes Summa Theologia there, so to obey means to be moved by another person through reason and will. I will fan some of these things out both in DLT and here. Doctrine of the mystery. The appropriate external term, that is the goal of the divine missions, which derive from the divine processions, is the restoration of all things. The reconciliation of all beings and things in the heavens and on earth. To God, that reconciliation is not only to God, but to one another. Enemies of one another reconciled. Persecutors and the persecuted, oppressors and the oppressed. Murderers and their victims and the victims and their murderers. Reconciled. How powerful is the cross to you? Or do you still have a gripe? In other words, that external appropriate term of the divine missions or goal of the divine missions or objective of the divine missions is the summing up of all things in Christ by the Father's will. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. The mutual interpenetration called perichoresis, of the triune God and all things, so that God is all and in all, all in all. So to command corresponds to fulfillment. In John's gospel, Jesus says, here's some more things. Jesus says this, John six thirty eight. for I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me, the obedience of Jesus Christ. John 5.30, backing up a little bit, I can do nothing on my own. Obedience is total dependence. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 14.24 The word that you hear is not mine. And may this be true for me too, Father. But it is from the Father who sent me. This is also in agreement with John 7, 16. My teaching isn't mine, but it's from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he or she will understand whether the teaching is from God or if I'm speaking on my own. The one who speaks for himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. He's authentic. He's true. He's real. 
And there is no unrighteousness in him. Capital H, I am speaking of Jesus here specifically. John 8, 28, which I regard to be the center and the key verse of John. Not 316, but 828. Jesus said to them, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am. And that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. John 4.34. Aren't you hungry, Lord, after all these laboring today? Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You know where that leads, don't you? John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. What was finished? The Father's will. What's the Father's will? Let me throw out a hint to you. Thelema is the word. It's found in Ephesians 1.9. It's called the mystery of God's will, which is to sum up all things in Christ. When was that finished? When Jesus said finished, the father said, it's done. All things are being made new. At the moment of Jesus' death, the mission for which he was sent was accomplished by his obedience to the father's command and will to the extent even of death, even the death of the cross, which isn't just death by crucifixion. It's the death Jesus died on the cross, enduring the wages of sin and where sin would have taken the human race. Philippians 2.8. The father is greater than the human Jesus in the important sense that it was the father who commanded and Jesus who fulfilled the father's command as a divine person acting Humanly, for he had two natures, divine and human, in one person. He wasn't a human person, per se. He was a divine person with a human nature. As a divine person acting humanly, the Father, who is a divine person commanding divinely, was greater than him, and only in that sense. You can't use that verse to support your doctrine of subordinationism. That Jesus is something less than the Father or that he came into being at some point in time or at some point in eternity that he was made by the Father. So if two people knock on your door and use that verse and you got time, have a little coffee clatch. Well, the Bible says not to receive them. That's not talking about. You can receive them if you want into your house and give them the gospel. Second John 9 isn't talking about Jehovah's Witnesses coming to your house. It's talking about an emphatic command that those who were directly impugning John's teaching weren't allowed in to speak in the house churches. doesn't mean you can't invite 
Mormons into your, come on in. Oh, yeah, I got, hey, you tell me yours, I'll tell you mine. You show me yours, I'll show you mine. If you got the time, I never have the time. So I like to do things when I see them come out of their cars two by two. I, I put a sign out, leprosy within, you know, on the, on the door, you know, something like that. No, usually a little more polite, like no solicitation. I'm studying. But how about this? The Father's command was the directive of a divine person commanding divinely. The obedience of Jesus was the actions of a divine person done humanly and done, therefore, as human acts. It's notable at the close of Romans, Paul wrote Romans 16, 25. Listen carefully, 25 to 27. This, I believe, was not only at the end of Romans, but the end of the entire collection of Paul's epistles. As in his dying phase, he said to Timothy, bring my parchments, especially bring the parchments. Bring my cloak. Yeah, I need that for the winter. But more importantly, bring my parchments. And I believe it was the collection of his epistles. He wrote, I believe, and this isn't something you have to believe, but it's intriguing one way or another. I think he wrote Romans sixteen twenty-five to 27 as a postscript over all the collection of his epistles. Because look what it says. Now to him who has the power to strengthen you by my gospel... And the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery, literally the mystery, kept silent for ages of time gone by, but is now manifested through the writings of the prophets. Take a look at that phrase down the road. And made known to all the nations by command of the eternal God to bring about obedience That is a participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ by all the nations. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory for the ages to come. Amen. Now, please notice. First, the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. Notice, second, the command of the eternal God and the obedience by all the nations. The obedience by all the nations to the command of the eternal God is brought about solely and completely by the meritorious obedience of Jesus Christ in which the nations, all of humanity in all of its times, are destined to participate. This obedience of faith is evoked by the Holy Spirit at the effectual preaching of the gospel. Do you realize when this gospel is preached, faith is evoked in the listeners. Faith, if it's already been evoked, is deepened in the listeners. And faith becomes the conviction of things not seen and the assurance of things hoped for. A deepened assurance until it becomes a full assurance. Now the sum and the substance... And the effect of the commandment that Jesus received from the Father is life. John twelve fifty. The Father's commandment is life. I have received a commandment from my Father. Some substance and totality of that commandment is life. 
John 12:50. In other words, Jesus' obedience to the extent of death would result in life. Life not only for Jesus, who had the authority not only to lay his life down, but to take it back up again in resurrection, but life for the world. That's the commandment. John 6:51, John 12:50. The world that God saved through the sending of his only begotten son, his only eternally begotten son by a divine procession, he sent on a mission to save the world. Did the mission succeed? Well, there's people that, you know, their free will, yeah, right. That argument is not only silly and doesn't think through to the end, That argument about human will denies the will of God, which is to sum up all things in Christ, whether you will it or not. The human will and so-called human free will, which is supposedly able to refuse God's salvation, is the last human citadel of idolatry that has to be demolished. And the word of God does it. Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Pulled down. No wonder Jeremiah was told to pluck up, pull down, root up and destroy. And then not be afraid of the faces of the congregation as he does it. And then after that, what does he do? He builds and he plants. Now. Fourth gear. Why do we begin the doctrine of the mystery with the obedience of Jesus Christ? The commandment of God is life. The world that God saved through the sending of his only eternally begotten son is the world that God loved so much that it occasioned the sending of his son. Whereas 1 Corinthians 15.22 says in Christ All will be made alive. The commandment of the father was not death, but life. But the command of life required the death of God's son. Which required in turn the son's obedience. The son's obedience to the extent of death on the cross was the son's obedience to the command of God, the eternal father, which was life. Jesus said it this way in John in Luke 20, 20, 38. God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. And in his sight, all are living to him. All are living. In other words, God no longer looks upon the human race and sees that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He sees because the Lord of glory was crucified. All the human race in the Lord of glory who received back that fallen glory. He sees all the human race in Christ, all the human race in all of its times. He sees as living. Well, I don't see it that way. Well, who the hell are you? Hell is real, and it's you. And no, I don't believe in a hell that's for a little while, or a hell that's supposed to purge people or convince people. Or I don't believe in a purgatory. And I don't believe in ages and ages and ages are needed to convince certain people that Jesus is Lord. I believe it's all done at the cross. And I make no apologies for that. And even if that makes me separated from among the so-called universalists. 
All right. Okay. God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. And to him all are living because he regards the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world, who took away the sin of the world. God does not see all of humanity dead in sins, but all of humanity in all of its times living and alive in his son. He sees his son. I'm sorry, but he's occupied with no one else but his son. But in his son, he sees all humanity alive. You dare to see as he sees? Well, sometimes it takes a crushing of the spirit because God dwells in a high and holy place and he inhabits eternity with the one who is also of a crushed spirit. You're only going to see if your spirit is poor, the poor in spirit to them belong the kingdom of God, the crushed in spirit to them they see as God sees. That doesn't mean that you got to go through hell to see that what God sees. It just means that you come to a willingness to obey and that you love humility more than authority. Having it, that is. Because the Lamb of God took away the sin of the world. God does not see all of humanity dead in sin, but all of humanity in all of its times alive in his son. How does this obedience of Jesus Christ to the extent of death on a cross then relate to the doctrine of the mystery? Much and in every way. Why do we begin this doctrine of the mystery then? With the obedience of Jesus Christ. I asked God that because I was going to start with Hebrews 10. And then I was strongly, strongly directed to John fourteen twenty eight, And I said, how does that work? Well, I'm showing you how it works. Why do we begin the doctrine of the mystery of the obedience of Jesus Christ? Because the obedience of Jesus Christ means that he fully obeyed the Father's will. And what is the Father's will? Well, the mystery of the Father's will is to sum up everything in the heavens and earth in Christ. In Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. This is going to occasion a new exegesis of Ephesians sometimes. This will, which is Thelema, T-H-E-L, A-T-E-M-A, Thelema, T-H-E-L-E-M-A, Thelema. This Thelema, this will, as Ephesians 1.9 says it, is not just the Father's desire. Well, the Lord, he desires to save everybody, but he probably can't because there's that free will thing. Oh, come on. You have such a pathetic God. Well, see, you know what it says? The word thelema is not the father's desire, which may or may not be fulfilled. It's not his wish. God doesn't wish. I wish. It's not his wish that may or may not come true as he blows out birthday candles. How many candles? Quite a few. It is the unstoppable resolution of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. Ephesians 1.11. This is what Romans 16.25 refers to and it speaks of the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. The obedience of Jesus Christ was executed by him to the extent of death, the death of the cross. See where mystery and inspiration come together. The obedience of Jesus Christ to the extent of death on a cross led to his supreme elevation above the heavens 
and his exaltation and to the bowing of every reconciled knee. And the acknowledgement by every reconciled tongue that Yahweh is Jesus to the glory of God the Father whose will was accomplished and whose commandment was obeyed by his only begotten son. So when we read the Gospels in closing, we ought to be aware. When we read the Gospels, we ought to be aware that they are the narrative of the obedience of Jesus Christ to the command of the Father to bring life to the world, to reconcile all things, to fill up all things with himself. The one who descended is the same as the one who ascended far above all the heavens in Ephesians 4.10. Notice that verse. The one who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he would fill up all things with himself. He comprises all of the creation. All of the creation is in Christ and Christ is in all the creation. And so the father who's pleased to dwell in Christ is certainly pleased to dwell in all the creation in whom Christ now indwells. And God is therefore going to be all in all and nothing's left out. Except that really one very, very, very bad person that we want to make the scapegoat instead of Jesus Christ. And make him or her suffer for all of eternity. Or for a really, 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 really long time. The guy that tells me he doesn't believe in eternal hell. But he believes in hell has a purpose for a really, 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 really long time. Is just doing a redux of purgatory. And it's almost as bad. Of course, not as bad. As holding on to the doctrine of an eternal hell. Because it still says something against the cross of Christ and makes that person an enemy of the cross of Christ. So I'm not going there. In closing, then. Perfectly calm, see that? Now, it doesn't mean that that person's evil. It just means that the end of their doctrinal teaching is Zero. It's destruction. It's, there's nothing to it. It's going to just go. <laughs> when, as Paul said, one guy builds with wood, hay, and stubble. Another guy builds with silver, gold, and precious stones. You know what? One person speaks what God tells him to say. Another person speaks what he thinks is right. What he thinks is right burns up at the evaluation. And even the guy, if there's such a person who never, ever did anything right or anything to the glory of God or anything of obedience, when everything's all burned up, he himself shall be saved because there's no other foundation that can be laid than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. All my life, especially in Vermont, they don't, they don't use foul language in Vermont. They use blasphemous language. All my life I heard Christ. So you know what I say today in response to that? Christ is the mystery. The mystery of God is Christ. A little bit different spirit motivating that though. Hit your hand with a hammer. Christ. What's the mystery? 
Colossians 2.2, Christ. Now, two people can scream the word Christ. One does it in ultimate praise. Another does it because he's got a sore thumb. All my life I heard it. And I hate, I, I want to watch a good TV show, I got to hear it again. So every time I hear it now, I just say, Christ, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Colossians 2, 2 and 3. So, the Gospels don't just tell a story that's intended merely to warm the hearts of people on Christmas. Or Easter. They present the narrative of the obedience of the Son of God to his Father, by which the Father's will to restore all things was fulfilled. Linus came close when he said, Tidings of joy which shall be to all people. Though I've employed the way of teaching today, I've left a lot of room for you to discover. For yourselves. But Colossians 2, 2, and 3 says, all the riches of assured understanding. And that you have the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. The knowledge of God's, what is God's mystery? Christ! The mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is Christ whom we teach. It is Christ whom we preach. It is Christ whom we teach, warning every man, teaching every man in order to present everybody in thy phalanx mature before him in love. If I could say Christ in reverence like I've said it today, as many times as I've heard Christ in irreverence in my life, then my ministry will be done. And as many times as I myself have used his name. In unbelief, in ignorance, and in shamefulness. I hope I use his name in praise as many times and then one. Though I've employed the way of teaching today, I've done so leaving room for discovery. Discovery of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that lie hidden to be discovered in Christ. Thank you, Father. We love your son inasmuch as we understand that he went back to you. The one in whom you were well pleased demonstrated that pleasure by obedience to the extent of death. Not just death by crucifixion, but the death of the cross by which he brought life to all those dead in sins. Father, we stand today as people who have, among those who are called, all have sinned and keep falling short of the glory of God. We thank you that your son, the Lord of glory, was crucified, not only to redeem us from the sin, but to restore the glory. And so we wait with expectation And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, which is our glorification 
already done in the Lord of glory, but yet to be manifested when he appears and we appear with him in glory. I pray that today's message will result in a fuller assurance of understanding. A fuller assurance of understanding. So that we can, with courtesy and meekness and kindness in imitation of our Father in heaven, give a reason to the hopeless around us for the hope that is in us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.